Let us turn to the Word of God in Exodus chapter 32. We've been considering in our series on the Exodus the events at the Mount Sinai where God delivered the commandments, the Ten Commandments that we know so well, but also established Israel as the Old Covenant people. So they became a people uh, of law and of letter. And there were some 613 commandments that were given to them, so say the Jews who, were, who count these things and who major on these things, and uh, which are, of course, of great interest and edification for us. But this people of the law, this people of the old covenant here, are represented as responding in a certain way that's incredibly and importantly edifying for the people of God today in the New Covenant. So let's read Exodus 32. We'll read the whole thing. I'm just going to examine some lessons here or discern some lessons here in three things as we consider the sin of the golden calf. Exodus 32, the Word of God. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. And then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation." Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I've spoken of, I, will give, I give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. 
So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides, on the one side, and on the other they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the crying of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. So it was as soon as he came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Then he took the calf which they had made, burned it in the fire, and ground it to powder, and he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? So Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. But they said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. Now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies, Then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And about 3,000 men of, people, of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, that he may bestow on you a blessing this day, for every man has opposed his son and his brother. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, so now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, All these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a god of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now therefore go, lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will punish upon them for the, or I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. Thus far we read the sordid, infamous account of sin of Israel and the golden calf. Sordid and infamous 
so much so that it's called this very great sin by Moses. And it's called so and reflected upon also in the Psalms, such as Psalm 106 and in other places of the Bible. Here, in fact, is the church, the first church service of the Old Testament church that had been constituted as God's people at Sinai. The first church service, really, first assembling of the people together, but not in the name of Moses, the mediator, or of God, but according to their own whims. They came because they were impatient with God's way, and Moses being delayed, they thought, on this mountain, not enough information being given to them and in time to satisfy their curiosity and to pique their interest and to promote uh, what they thought would be their, their joy and their satisfaction of knowing certain things. So they make a golden calf out of earrings and other things probably that they had received from the Egyptians on their way out. They had been treasured by the Egyptians on their way out because the Egyptians were glad to get rid of them. Now they made these gifts that were really gifts from God to be used in other things into an idol, the golden calf. The sin of the golden calf is presented here. Israel's worship is presented here of around this golden calf. They're eating and drinking and rising up to play is presented as an outstanding bad example of what it is to respond to God's revelation. We need to take this to heart, beloved. In fact, this is the primordial sin of Israel, people have said in their comments on this, and presented to Israel itself as the essence of all sin, of what not to do with the revelation of God. This sin of the golden calf and its worship was in fact replicated by Jeroboam when he left the line of David, the covenant of grace and the true worship of God at Jerusalem for the worship of golden calves, which he set up in Dan and Bethel. It was the occasion for the apostasy of Israel, the northern tribes from the line of David. There would be no good king that would come from that line and it would be for their destruction and their captivity in Assyria in 722 B.C. This is for our instruction. This people is the people of God representing in a type, in a picture, what the church is and what sinners are who are God's people. They are this only by grace because naturally our worship is to rise up and play and eat and dance around a golden calf. May God keep us from this sin as we learn of it, the sin of the golden calf and its worship. Then we learn of the Savior, and then we learn of the service. Where there's a response here of the Levites that's commendable, they take up the sword against their own brethren, against their own families, because the greater thing, the family of God, is the thing that they're concerned with, and the honor of God is the thing that they are especially concerned of. So we consider the sin of the golden calf and that it was sin. Sin is a response to God's word that is not appropriate. 
That's what sin is. Described in many words in the Bible, sin is a missing of the mark of the will of God. Sin is a transgression of the law going over what God has said you may not go over. Sin is a rebellion, even as at the first when Adam and Eve didn't like it in the garden even, in the perfection of God's presence there. They wanted something more. That's what sin is. Rebellion, defiance, discontent, unthankfulness, the whole nine yards of all of the manure pile that sin is, is seen also in the sin of the golden calf. Whether it is sin against the first or the second commandment is a matter of debate among commentaries. The first commandment requires that we have no other gods before God. And the second commandment, which is distinct, regardless of what the Roman Catholics say, they want to make it all one, it's distinct. It has to do with the worship of God, how we are to have no other gods in our worship. It was the heathen practice to have other gods besides God, of course, and then to worship in ways whereby they could represent God in these things they made, whether of stone, whether of, of iron or metal or whatever other metal or, or gold or silver. They made representations of their gods and the forces that they thought were in control of the universe, and they would offer bulls and goats to them, and they would dance around these, these things, and, and they would call this worship. God calls it idolatry, but this is exactly what was happening in Exodus 32. It is, in fact, both a transgression of the first and second table. They were having other gods, and they were worshiping God in a way that he had explicitly forbidden in the giving of the Ten Commandments that they had already heard. In fact, in Exodus 20, we read this added word. It was something that spoke to them directly about their making gods of silver and gold. In Exodus 20, 22, the Lord said to Moses, You shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me. Gods of silver or gods of gold you shall not make for yourselves. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and so on. So these covenantal requirements were impressed upon the people. Number one, of the nature of God. He is spirit. He is above the earth. He visits and they can't even see him. And then number two, that they may not make any representation of him. Now the question is, why? Why may not people make any representation of God? Something that stands for God. That's what we mean by representation. Why may not we draw a picture of God and say, I'm going to worship God and have that in mind as I'm worshiping him? Why is it, in fact... uh, a sinful thing when people try to represent even Jesus with pictures and they have a beard and they have a picture of him in their minds and so they write it down. Why is this also something that is linked to transgression of the second commandment? Well, it is, beloved, simply because of this. God said so. You shall not make anything that is to represent me. You're not to do this. 
And the reason is, number one, God cannot be represented by anything we think on the earth. And number two, he knows our hearts. As soon as we have an earthly picture of God, we think, we're going to think earthly things about God. We're going to be drawn from God and true worship and belief in him to the worship of the works of our own hands or the things of the earth. Romans 1, in fact, tells us that this was the sin of paganism. The Gentile sin without God is depicted in Romans 1 as receiving good gifts and yet turning those good gifts into idols. And they change the glory of God into a created thing. This is the sin of the golden calf. Aaron's sin, even though he likes to give an excuse for it, and he says, well, they told me to do this, and I cast all of this gold into the fire, and voila, this calf came out of the fire, as if Aaron had nothing to do with it. Well, this was the sin of Aaron and the sin of Israel. They had other gods, idols, even though they said, this is the God that led you out of Egypt, they were in fact, turned away from God. It was as if they never saw this amazing thing happen on Mount Sinai. They never felt the shaking. They never heard the trumpet increasing, increasing in loudness. It's as if they forgot those things. On the birthday of that Old Testament church that met that notable day, and God with them. This is why sin always happens. People neglect what God has spoken, whether it's from a mountain, whether it's in a glorious day, and God's speaking through the glory that he reveals of himself in the sun and in the waning days of summer, in the, in the lushness of the, this green earth, or whether it's we neglect a catechism sermon or we neglect a, a sermon in the Old Testament or the New Testament and we don't hear it. This is the sin of disregard of the God of his word. It's the sin that's terrible. And it's a sin, really, of denying the word of the word, that's Jesus. This is what they're doing here. They're denying not only God and they're defying him, they're impatient with him, but they're rejecting Moses. The people speak of Moses as taking too long. They have their hand on their watch or on the sundial, and they're saying it's too long. We, we just can't trust this guy. Um, he's led us out of Egypt, to be sure, but now, Aaron, you take the place of Moses. Something's going on here. They want to displace Moses. Now, the fact that this is a sin against the mediator, a picture of Jesus, is clear from the fact that the replication of the sin of the golden calf in Jeroboam's time was exactly, precisely, a rejection of David and the line of David. Jeroboam was rejecting that God had made his promise to David and to his sons after them, and this, this picture of Jesus who would come from them, when Jeremiah rejected God's worship, he was rejecting the way to worship God 
at the temple in the line of David with respect to the promises to David, with respect, beloved, to Christ. And this is precisely what this problem is of this sin of the golden calf. It's a rejecting of God, who is spirit and cannot be represented. It is an ignoring and casting aside of his commandments. Don't try to make any representation to me of me or worship me by these things that you think are magically going to lead me into my presence. And it's a rejection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, remember, is the express image of God. Hebrews chapter 1 reminds us of this. He's the brightness of the glory of God, the express image of his person. What this means, and in the context of Hebrews 1, it's very clear, is that Jesus is God. He's God the Son. He's the one to look to and through whom we worship God by. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Everything we need to know about God on this earth is Jesus Christ and revealed in him. So to make any other image is to neglect Jesus Christ. That's the sin here. They reject God, the mediator, and therefore the true worship of God. Striking that their worship has to do with not only this pagan idolatry and dancing around things, but it has to do with pagan immorality. If you look closely and examine verses 6 and 7 of Exodus 32, this people, they were sitting down to eat and feasting and drinking and rising up to play there. And the idea is that they were committing lewd acts. This was abominable. That's why the Lord immediately said to Moses, go and get down your people of, uh, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves and so on. They turned out of the way. In fact, this is always the case. With idolatry, the worship of other gods, in wrong ways, is always immorality. This is true of the church of Jesus Christ as well. You leave God, you leave the true church, the worship of God, and you give yourselves and your children, to be sure, over to the ways of paganism in their immorality. This is what's happening in churches today. In fact, we need to talk about that. I believe that this sin of the golden calf, also replicated by Jeroboam, leading to the apostasy of that northern kingdom, is presented in the Bible as the sin that will lead to the great apostasy at the end of time. If we read in 2 Thessalonians, when we read there, that there's a great falling away or apostasy by the people of God who once claimed God as their God, we can be sure it will involve the sin of the golden calf. The sin of the golden calf in modern terms is basically a substitution by sinful man for God of anything that sinful man wants God to be. A substitution by sinful man and sinful people who claim to be Christians even, of something they think is God, 
and some truth they think is divine truth for the true God and for the truth. Sacred cows. This is what we often hear of nowadays, or this is the language we use. Sacred cows are things that people hold dear to themselves, even more dear than truth. Sacred cows can be traditions. We do it this way, we always do it this way, and if you make a noise about it, and even if it's not in the Bible, just go your own way. Those are sacred cows. We hold them so dear because, exactly because we, 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 the sinful man loves to make God in his image so that this God, this sacred cow, allows them to do what they want to do. They're free to eat and to drink and to play just the way they want to do. They play church. They play religion. They hold on to these things too. They're play-gaming religion and church as to a sacred cow. And if you would dare to assault that sacred cow, they'll, they'll go after you because you're going after that which allows them to appear religious and yet which is really the basis for their self-justification of living whatever way they want. That's a sin. And in these days... We need to think about this and always to think about this. We can make of the Bible without a certain chapter or with 13 different chapters added of our own making, maybe the book of Mitch or the book of somebody else who wants this in here. We can make them sacred to us and because it's what I came up with or what you came up with or what the elders came up with. We can make of anything that God says a sacred thing in substitution for what God really said by just adding to it or taking away from it. In our theology and in our worship, in Colossians 2, for example, we read of people who are threatening the church by adding to the worship and to the bylaws maybe of the church different things that were now prescribed as laws of God without which you cannot be saved. They were making, you know, do this, do that, and touch this, and don't touch that. Sacred requirements, kind of like the Roman Catholic Church that is added to the Word of God and subtracted from it in their will worship. That's what it's called, will worship. Well, the sin of the golden calf, then, is not just old, but it's still among us. We make of God, something that he's not, and then the worship of God goes to pieces. That's why people add to the simplicity of the worship that the Bible requires to try to make religion something more attractive. You know, that was the whole purpose of Jeroboam's golden calves. When he made those golden calves, it was to make religion attractive outside of Jerusalem, more convenient It was all, as one commentator has has said, and I agree with him, a thing of control. If we make up some kind of sacred thing that just we have, and then we try to defend it from practice and our theology somewhere in some obscure verse in the Bible, then we have control over the people, control over their minds, 
we can get them to come to Dan and Bethel and not to go back there. And besides that, oh, oh, it gets worse. It's all about pleasing men. Remember the Levites, they were the ones appointed of God to be the priests. Well, Jeroboam said, you know what? We need a religion of the people, for the people, and by the people. We need this. We need this kind of religion, and you do too. This is why Aaron here, I think, is the first man-pleaser in the Bible. Maybe there's others, but he was the first man-pleaser. The, the crowd came after him, and he said, well, I'm just doing your will, and this calf came out. He gave this excuse for this as if it was some magic and had nothing to do with it. And Jeroboam's the same way. He wants control over the people. Now, you can be the priest. You can. Just dress up and act a little act apart a little bit of someone who's a little different than normal people, but hey, you don't need to be Levites. Well, basically, there's a rebellion here against the order of God, the authority of God, the word of God, the way of God, the Christ of God, everything that has to do with focusing on God and not on men, and focusing on pleasing God, not on pleasing men. So these are the things, and God is very angry, of course. And this is my second point. This, this leads to the threat of utter destruction. In fact, in verse 7 and following, we have a, a conversation between the Lord Jehovah God and Moses that on first scratch of the head seems rather puzzling. The Lord says to Moses, go get down for your people. Note that, your people, not mine. Whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They've made themselves a molded calf, worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Then he said, I've seen this people. Doesn't say they're his. I've seen this people. Indeed, it's a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, and let my wrath, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. And Moses, I'll make you a great nation. Now, this is a conversation that begins, and you wonder, has God forgotten to be kind? It's exactly what Moses brings up. He pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? He's calling them your people, not my people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians speak and say, uh, he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce wrath, relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I'll multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land that I've spoken to uh, of, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. And so the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do his people. Now, what's going on here, beloved, is a great condescension, a great revelation here of the God who's so great. He comes down to the level of Moses and of a man, really, and shows his wrath in a way that seems like he's so frustrated he's going to do one thing and get out of my way. 
And then he invites Moses to enter the conversation pleading with the people. And this is our God. God, of course, we need to remember this, would never let Israel go. Not the true Israel. God would never go back on his promise. God, once he said, I promise, was speaking according to his eternal decree, after all, to have a people. And it's not true that God, when he speaks, must then relent from certain things he speaks as if he made a mistake, as if he lost his temper. Here is what I say is condescension. Others say it's an anthropomorphism, a way that the Bible has of describing divine wrath, for example, in human terms. God himself comes down to the level of Moses and to us so we can understand just how serious he is about this, so we can get it. God is mad. But he's not flying off the handle, not blowing his top. He's not saying, oh, those sons have done it again, or those daughters have done it again. He's not being like Moses was later on when he said, here now you rebels, even though he calls them stiff-necked, a stiff-necked people. God is holy here. But here's what he's doing. God is bringing out to Moses and to ourselves the kind of man that Moses is by the grace and appointment of God. Moses here shows himself a Christ man. Amazing. Here you have this remarkable prayer and pleading of Moses. He pleads this way and says, why does your wrath burn? And here is his most greatest concern. If you destroy this people, all that you've said with regard to your being the God of this people will be mocked. The Egyptians will say, ha, he brought them out just to hurt them. This was all a waste of time. It was a project that this God in heaven, as they say there is this God in heaven, failed at. And then Moses goes on to say, the promises you made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Israel, and Jacob, and so on, they're all come to naught if this people that you call to be your people is not let to enter the land of promise. Moses is pleading the honor of God, just like Jesus. More, Moses, Moses says later on in his wonderful uh, representation of what Jesus is all about, These people have committed a great sin, verse 31, and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, he's pleading, but if not, I pray you blot me out of your book which you have written. That's Jesus. There is this wonderful, outstanding picture of Jesus Christ. You know, beloved, the Jesus who's on the Mount of Heaven and enjoying the mystery of communion with God in perfect divine fellowship, even in his human nature. He's this Jesus who will do anything for us. He did anything for us. He died on the cross. And when he was there, 
His name was, as it were, blotted out of the book of life. He was forsaken of God. And this is the picture that is given to us here. There is a God who is angry with our sin. There is a people that deserves to be cast into to hell, the hottest place. But there's a God who forgives sinners. And this is all played out here in this narrative. God could have destroyed them all, but he doesn't. Because his son is there. Moses representing the son of God, even Jesus. And that briefly is the catechism, the lesson of the Savior in the sin of the golden calf. Finally, the service. There is a response that God wants. There's going to be punishment, or we call it chastisement, even though he's forgiving the people, at least his own among them. He's preserving the true Israel here so that there's punishments. Moses, on behalf of God, his anger becomes hot, verse 19. He cast the tables out of his hands, break them at the foot of the mountain as if this whole covenant was just broken. And then he makes the people uh, drink the, uh, the golden calf gold that he has burned and ground to powder and scattered on the water. Some people, even the Jews, think that this was death to whoever drank it. They find here that there was death not only in the drinking of the golden liquid, but because if you drink that, and I suppose enough of it, you'll die, but also in the plague that came upon the people. In verse 35, the Lord plagued the people, and because of the sword of the Levites, three ways that God executed the people in the camp who were notorious for the worship of the golden calf. Be that as it may, we're not sure just how many died or just what was uh, the effect, say, of drinking of the, the potion of the golden calf and the, and the powder and the water, but God was angry and he showed it. In fact, uh, this was a way that God had here of showing, as Moses said, whoever is on the Lord's side, verse 26. And this is what I want us to leave, be left with here. In verse 26, <clears throat> um, Moses stands in the entrance of the camp and says, whoever's on the Lord's side, come to me. What happened there was a marking of the lines, a drawing of the lines. All the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him, and he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, take up your sword and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, every man his neighbor. Amazing. This is, in fact, exactly what the church needs to do. We are sinful. We and our sin and the church's sin is always and ever at bottom a sin of the golden calf. We have another God besides God. We worship in a different way than he has said, those two principal sins. And then all of the other Garbage that follows. But we start off this way. Different idea of God. A different truth that's not in the Bible. 
a different way to get to God, a different way to be religious, a different way to do this and this, and call it good and call it morality because it's now, you see, my good. And God is calling his people out in our church too and in every church that's true to be those who are militant against that kind of apostasy. No golden calf worship, even if the golden calf worship is occurring in your very family. No golden calf worship. The sword of the word must come out. We don't go around, of course, stabbing people. But it's about taking a side that doesn't have to do with flesh and blood and kin. It has to do with who's on the Lord's side. Who will go to the cross and be there and know the peace and reconciling blood of Jesus Christ. That's the response we need to have. Not Levites, but Christians. Militant, but so glad in the God who forgives. Because he's forgiven you, beloved. He's forgiven us together. Our sins, our idolatries, our will worship, and all our immoralities. Do you know that? Oh, be those agents of peace, the sword of the word, humbly and gladly taking up the sword for God's sake. Amen. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us and help us to respond to your word and the lessons of the sin of the golden calf of Israel. And we might be humble and we might be on the side of the Lord and have nothing to do with the idolatry of the nations and even of the church, sometimes of our own families. God, forgive our sins. Help us to know Jesus, the one who himself was forsaken that we might never be, whose cross is the blood of our atonement, and indeed, which is amazingly powerful to blot out every one of our sins. Bless this congregation. May we rise up encouraged, for God is the God who will never forget true Israel, his chosen ones. We pray that we may abide in his word, his comfort, his promises, which he never denies, which are yea and amen, in the great Son of his love and ours, Jesus Christ. Amen.